Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Frico and I'm delighted to be here with the lovely Sarah Perry. Hello, thank you for having me. No problem. We're coming to you from Carriage Works at Sydney Writers Festival, where Sarah has just poured her heart out on stage all about Melmoth and just about writing in general and the deliciousness of gothic fiction. So, thank you. How does it feel? It was a really good event. I always... Um... Every time I do an event, I think if more than four people come, then it will be a success because four people was the fewest number I've ever had. So I always think if five people come, it'll be fine. But there were many more then. <laughs> it was really great. And Kate, the chair, was superb. So oh, she was yeah. amazing. Yeah, really good. Yeah, that was wonderful. Are you ever surprised at how big your fan base is in Australia? I'm stunned by it everywhere, really. Um, Everyone always is. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. I think also partly because I write quite unfashionable work. Um, and for a long time didn't think that I would find a publisher, never mind a large readership, because, you know, you don't really expect neo-Gothic fiction, which is set in strange places and times that's preoccupied with guilt um, and um, theology to find a large readership, but um, it has. So, yeah, I'm really delighted and um, met some amazing fans. Someone came and gave me a beautiful um, ancient black mineral stone that's like the Maldivites mentioned in my book. And, um, yeah, it was really wonderful. Oh, I had to stop myself from immediately going to Google. One more time. I can't do this in the front row. Well, I found there's a shop going nearby that sells it. So, um, well, I will have to buy that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I only mention like your big Australian fan base because I just know so many people who love your work and um, at Booktopia we have like an informal book club uh-huh. and we did the Essex Serpent um, about a year ago and it's just one of those books that's just perfect for a book club because like, most of us loved it and there was always that one person who was like, but this thing, yeah. you don't understand and what's happening in the end? One of my favourite things to hear is that people had a row about me in a book club. <laughs> I just Because I think if you write books which everybody kind of likes, mm. you know, the majority of people kind of like, I think I, I would feel that I'd done something a bit wrong. But I really like the idea of people pitching up to a book club and having a stand-up fight halfway through. Um, and so I know that all my books really divide people. Um, Melmoth in particular... Melmoth is the first time I've ever had bad reviews, like really bad reviews, and it really hurts to start with. Um, but the combination of the amazing reviews for Melmoth with the bad ones, I was like, yeah, I've just set the cat among the pigeons, and then um, it really delighted me. So, yeah. When you get people talking, which is... Absolutely, yeah. Well, absolutely the goal. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, Melmoth, why don't you tell our readers, our listeners, rather, a little bit about... Um, so it's inspired by an 1820 gothic novel called Melmoth the Wanderer and in my version there's an ancient legend about a woman called Melmoth who uh, denied having seen the risen Christ and because of this she is cursed to wander the earth for all eternity bearing witness so there are these stories and fairy tales that are told to children all over the world where um, Melmoth is watching you. So Melmoth watches and she knows when you've done something wrong. And so you have a novel in which various people know about the legend of Melmoth and they start to suspect that Melmoth is watching them. So it's got quite a complicated structure and there are narratives from contemporary Prague and from Prague in the Second World War and Armenia and Essex in the 17th century um, and uh, Manila in the 1990s and the common thread in them all is the idea of Melmoth and if she's watching you why is she watching you and what have you done 
Love it. She's kind of the anti-Santa Claus. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, bad Santa. <laughs> bad Santa to a whole new level with this incredible gothic horror sensibility that you don't often see. Like, I think the word gothic is thrown at a lot of books these days. Like, oh, it's new gothic, neo gothic. Yeah. But they're not. I never feel like they're fully committing to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because I have a secret love of gothic fiction. I studied it in high school, debating doing it for my thesis, but. Oh, we'd have to read Mel with the Wonder, apparently. Yeah, yes, you would, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's kind of repays reading, I think, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's because the Gothic is very, um, kind of quite hard to pin down what it is, because it's not mm. a genre, it's a sensation. Mm. And I think this is what sets true Gothic fiction aside from other fiction, which is really great, but I would kind of call more Gothic-inflected. So you have ghost stories, which have a little bit of a gothic sensibility. You can have horror stories, which have a bit of a gothic feeling behind mm. it. You can have historical fiction, which has a slight gothic feeling. But the real gothic is quite disruptive, and it's very uncomfortable to read. And it's all about feeling, and it's about how the reader feels. And I remember reading one review of Melmoth saying, oh, I mean, I don't understand, because on the one hand, you think you're reading a gothic novel, and then on the other hand, it's dealing with matters of sin and transgression. And I thought, right... So we need a conversation about what the Gothic is because that's absolutely what the Gothic does. It uses kind of quite absurd and inflated storytelling or supernatural storytelling to dig down into some serious stuff about who we are and how we behave and what we do. I think it's the perfect novel for right now. Like, honestly, um, the whole theme of the festival is lie to me and it's about the lies we tell ourselves in order to survive throughout, through our fiction um, so I, I honestly think it's a perfect 21st century Thank novel. Thank you. Well, that's amazing to hear because I remember mm. after The Essex Serpent wanting to give up writing fiction because it just seemed like a waste of time. Mm. Um, there'd been the terrible massacre at the Orlando nightclub mm. um, when 52 members of the LGBTQ community were murdered because of who they are and ISIS was kind of rampaging across the Middle East and I felt like you couldn't turn on your television without seeing a sort of poor drowned toddler escaping Assad kind of washing up on a Mediterranean beach and I thought honestly what are you doing with your time so Melmoth is my way of insisting that literature can matter um, and a way of addressing what's happening around us um, but in a way that hopefully is also <laughs> fun to read sometimes I don't make it sound much fun but um, I hope it is well I don't think fiction should always be fun necessarily just challenging yeah um, was there anything in particular that compelled you to bring the character of Melmoth, the Wanderer, who is, as we said, a witness to life's atrocities. Was there any one thing in particular like that compelled you to bring her to the 21st century? Um, I don't think so, other than this sense of... I can remember being on social media. I used Twitter mm. quite a lot. And there was a moment when I began to be angry because my timeline would be full of very brutal and disturbing photos mm. of things that had happened in the world. And the little toddler... Um, was a, the refugee, drowned refugee was one of them. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, you shouldn't be forcing me to look at these things, you shouldn't be taking photographs, we shouldn't be spreading them around. Mm. And then I remembered reading If This Is A Man, Primo Levi's book about the Holocaust, and it's an Auschwitz memoir, and about how he talks about the act of bearing witness as something that he hopes will continue, and that as long as we continue to bear witness to what happened, both in the Holocaust and in other atrocities, then that is a moral act, and so my squeamishness about being forced to confront this stuff came up against my belief that bearing witness is a kind of moral responsibility. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's why I did it. And that's why I wanted to write about areas of history that are not talked about so much. 
um, because that's sort of almost the Melmoth's role is that she's there when, when nobody else is. Yeah, that's very true. What's so impressive about it, I think, is not only are there these amazing Gothic sensibilities in this contemporary world, even though it travels back and forth in time, it's that all of your work seems to have not a moral backbone, but just there is a sense of morality being important and bearing witness to things and making sure that they're known. But it never feels didactic, like you're preaching. I'm really, really interested to hear that. I've, I've been thinking a lot lately, and, and I'm going to be writing about um, the way that fiction can be good. So I'm really interested in the word good and the way it can be used. So what do we mean when we say it's a good book? On the surface of it, we're making a kind of aesthetic judgment, but there's another way that we use the word good. And I'm trying to think about to what extent we can consider moral virtue as part of artistic excellence, which is a really unfashionable thing to say. But I've never been in fashion and I'm not about to start at the age of 39. (laughs) So um, Aristotle wrote about the concept of carlos, which sort of means noble and virtuous and beautiful. And like when he writes about it, it um, conflates the two ideas. And I'm really interested in this and in the idea of how kind of there can be virtue in in artistic excellence. And if that's something that we should think about more mm-hmm. um, but because I'm no, you know I used to be very religious had a very religious upbringing now I think of myself as post-religious and so that's why the books aren't didactic because I don't actually have any answers mm-hmm. but I hope I have a kind of insistence on literature having a capacity to have a moral purpose mm-hmm. and if I didn't think that I couldn't do it. Interesting um, we were actually kind of talking about something very similar with um, Max Porter um, we interviewed him yesterday about, you know, what is the role of the novel in, you know, having that kind of responsibility and what the form of it can do. Because yeah. um, we often think of novels as very kind of frivolous things, you know, just things you use to fritter away the time. But, I mean, I don't want to say the whole cliched, they're more important now than ever. <laughs> but, I mean, there has to be some... That has to be important, you know what I mean? Well, the thing is, I... I don't think that one's moral responsibilities stop at the production and the consumption of art. Hmm. And so I was talking earlier on stage about having stopped watching Game of Thrones. Now, I have to say, if if any listeners or you are avid Game of Thrones fans, I'm absolutely not casting aspersions on it. But I believe very strongly that art should not degrade the participant. And for me, I found Game of Thrones degrading. So I abs- I cannot tell you how much I love that show. I had a costume party at which everybody dressed up as a you character. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and so I absolutely loved it. I loved it with my whole heart. But it was also degrading me because it was forcing me to watch the protracted torture of one of its characters. It was forcing me to take a kind of really weird delight in rape and mm. violence. Um, and I found that personally degrading. And so I had to decide that my moral um, principles extended to the consumption of art and then obviously it extends to the creation of it. So I've, I've had this discussion with writers on panels before about, you know, should our work have moral purpose? I can't believe that that could even be queried because you do not turn off your beliefs and your and your moral codes like a tap because you sat down mm. to create, it's all still you. So everything that you think and everything that you try to work towards should all apply. Um, and um, yeah, I'm really, really interested in it. And there's some fiction that's been published recently 
that um, that I think are wicked books, like actually wicked, because they invite that kind of delicious pornographic delight in trauma visited on children. I mean, it's not fair to name them, but there's a book that did very, very well in the UK, very highly praised, um, chosen for various kind of promotions and so on. And in it, the repeated rape of a 13-year-old by her father is written in the I language of pornography. And that was the exact problem that practically everyone in my office yeah. had. Yeah, I'm not naming the book. No, but you would finish a chapter and feel like you had to go take a shower. Yeah, absolutely. And, it and it, it's not like reading Lolita, where no. the whole point of the book is the unreliability of the narrator. So it didn't have the sophistication to force that on the reader, where you're questioning reliability and fantasy. It was just pornography. And I still can't believe that it received the kind of attention that it did because it was so morally egregious that it seemed obvious to me that, you know, this is something that should have been challenged kind of very early on. So um, it's interesting you bring up Lolita because that always comes back around. That's always the book that everyone picks to say, oh, this generation is too sensitive. You could never publish Lolita now. And you, 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 you would. Well, apart from anything else, they couldn't publish it then either. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a completely specious argument. I know. Yeah, I know. Anyone who thinks, oh, you know, the millennials wouldn't like us to publish a leader, I'm like, have you seen? Well, firstly, I'm nearly a millennial. I'm only not a millennial by 33 days, and I'm middle aged. So, you know, um, um, it's ridiculous to kind of have that kind of argument and to say that, you know, that we're. Oh, God, it's so tiring. You know, I do not. I, as a straight white. basically fairly able-bodied British women, I do not feel censored by anybody in my writing. And I don't really think anyone else does. Um, I think if people are really worried, it's because they might have a little bit of a guilty conscience. Yeah, probably. I think so. And also, you know, if I write... this, We've gone off on a tangent. But if I write a character from a marginalised community and I do not do a good job and I'm told that I didn't do a good job, I would hope I would have the humility to say... I have failed. I'm sorry about that. Um, and to continue and to learn. Um, but I don't feel that I'm prevented by the possibility that I might not get it right because I might not get all sorts of things right and I will always try to. The whole thing's a bit of a storm in the teacup. It really is. And it, it's one that keeps coming up. And yeah, and I only think two people are drinking from that teacup. But the rest <laughs> of us just are not even thinking about it. I know. So, much, so many of those debates only really happen on that online Sphere. Totally. And also, it completely loses some of the sophistication around it. So, for example, Malmoth has a section that's set in Manila. Mm. Um, and obviously, um, that is writing about what, from the point of view of the British, are a minority ethnic community. And so I had to think, right, can you do this and how can you do it? And I did mm. it by two ways. Firstly, I lived in Manila for six months and I was writing about a British woman living there. Mm. So I would have found it very difficult to appropriate the voice of a, of a Filipino woman, for example. But what I could try to do was to think about what it would be like to be a British woman living in Manila. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when people say, I can't write about whatever, I think, well, you just have to do it well, but yeah. you should do your writing well anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, that's absolutely true, and... That scene is one of the ones that always sticks out to me, um, that particular storyline thread. Um, so, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to come back to is that throughout all of your books, there's this kind of grapple with the concept of belief. So there's belief in a higher power, um, belief in science, belief in a supernatural entity, um, and people who struggle with that belief. Um, it's one of the things that I love so much about the Essex Serpent and, and like these two characters, Cora and... 
gosh, what's his name? Will? Will yes. Yeah, no, sometimes I forget as well. Because <laughs> I'm now writing my fourth book. So the yes yeah. and is like two books behind. I'm like, oh yeah, Will, that's right, yeah. yeah. And just that struggle with the concept of belief, like just in the idea of believing in something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's, you may call it old-fashioned, but it's not that I find really fascinating, it's bit, especially in such a secular world. Um, is it intentional, your focus on I just, it's the whole, it's my whole bag, I suppose. <laughs> I, and I, um, I would find it very difficult, and mm. I think it would be futile, to write against who I am. So there was a period in my 20s when I was studying for an MA in creative writing where the fact that I was from a deeply religious background, still had faith, was very uneasy about the contemporary world, didn't understand pop culture references and so on, Mm. loved Tennyson and Bronte, um, was troublesome. um, And I felt perhaps I shouldn't ever write about religion or faith or belief. Um, But that would be deceitful because it's my main preoccupation in life, really, or one of my main ones. And I've learnt, and there was a really good question from a young woman in the audience, and I I think I garbled my reply slightly, but I think something that's really important is to understand that you can't falsify who you are. And you can only write about the things, not write what you know, that's a really um, asinine um, Mm. phrase, but write who you are, which is a different thing. So, you know, I'm somebody who had a salvation experience at the age of seven, firmly believed that I was a lost and helpless sinner destined for a literal hell and that only the saving blood of Christ could redeem me and that having been redeemed I was one of the elect and when I died would go to heaven and this was like my guiding principle for for many years right into adulthood Um, and to not have that anymore or to not have that to that degree of certainty is frightening and challenging and forces you to question all other kinds of beliefs and to say if you remove that locus of your moral compass like your magnetic north Mm. does your needle just spin helplessly around or do you find other compass points that will kind of steady you and keep you on course that's a really naff analogy i'm sorry it's fine it's beautiful blame jet like (laughs) no um love that um i guess coming back to gothic horror um just, I just want, really want to know what some of your other favourite works are. Oh my god, well, um, so I think one of the greatest gothic novels that we have is Hilary Mantel's Flood, um, which is completely extraordinary, and which um, is it's very slim, I like short novels, and it's set in the 1950s, and a, a, a priest in a Catholic church is told that he's got too old-fashioned, and an, an exciting young curate is going to turn up and help him modernise the church. And on a dark and stormy night, the young curate turns up, and it becomes increasingly apparent that he's the devil. And it's incredibly seductive and dark and funny and brilliant. And Hilary Mantel writes the Gothic amazingly, and Beyond Black is really amazing. Um, in terms of classic Gothic literature, you know, we all live in the shadow of Frankenstein. And mm. um, the idea amazing. that, you know, Mary Shelley was 17. Outrageous. Mm. And the amazing thing about Frankenstein is that it fulfills all this criteria for great fiction in the sense that, well, A, she invented a genre, which I that that's about as great as you can get. Um, but also... It's an extraordinary bit of storytelling with amazing language. And she killed God. Like, she actually, in the year 1818, I think it was, invented the idea that we're not born to original sin. Just just an extraordinary concept. 
And so for the rest of my life, you know, you'll be writing in the shadow of a teenage girl who achieved this extraordinary thing, which is to write a fable that kind of institutes a kind of medical sci-fi genre and then at the same time completely upended the entire guiding ontology of the Western world. Being <laughs> flexed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, every time I think about Frankenstein, I just get so overwhelmed. Like, I had to read it for my final year of um, high school, and so you kind of, everyone hated it. Yeah, everyone hated course, it. I had to read it again for university, and I was just, how did I ever not like it? I think at the time I did like it. Yeah. I was just so overcome with all the knowing every single trope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Sometimes having to learn a book at school is like a death knell for Mm. ever wanting to read it again. It really is, it really is. And another thing that I love about gothic fiction is that straddles that line between literary fiction and genre fiction. Yeah. And it appends the idea that, they're opposing in a way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I secretly love it. I, well, you know, the Gothic has never been taken seriously. And mm. I was really quite, when I was sitting down to write Melmoth, I just remember thinking, if ever you're going to get a bad review, it's going to be with this book. Because the British in particular do not like supernatural horror fiction. Mm. The, the, the critical response to Melmoth was fascinating from the point of view of kind of the idea of what constitutes literary fiction. So in America, it was kind of uniform. Yeah great reviews which was really lovely and then in the UK it was split between really kind reviews and absolute outrage that I'd written something so cheap you know (laughs) because it's a supernatural horror novel and fortunately I was sort of prepared because I've studied the gothic and I knew I knew perfectly well what people think of gothic horror which is not much and when Melmoth the Wanderer was published they called it the ravings of a madman so, you know, I was kind of braced for it. But it does come from this kind of spurious distinction between literary fiction and genre fiction and the squeamishness around genre fiction, which is, you know, it's a really modern invention. You know, when Charles Dickens wrote A Tale of Two Cities and when George Eliot wrote Middlemarch, they weren't writing historical fiction. They were just writing the novels that they wanted to write. And, you know, I'd quite like to go back to an idea that, you know, once upon a time there was good books and the only two genres I care about. <laughs> that is a brilliant quote. Oh, so we're kind of running short on time. Sure. I do just have to ask, are you working on anything new, which you said you were? Yeah. And can you give us a hint? Yeah, I mean, I'm writing um, about my about myself for the first time. So it's, <laughs> um, it's fiction, but it's not until quite late in life, I think, that we start to realise, late in life, I'm 39, but something about turning 40 this year makes me keep referring to myself as an old lady. Um, I now begin to look back on my childhood, particularly my experiences around faith, with a very different eye, um, because distance doesn't necessarily lend enchantment to the view, but it does lend a kind of wisdom and an ability to look at it in a way that perhaps you can't do when your youth was only sort of 10 years before. So I do think of myself as finishing a Gothic project. You know, my debut novel was psychological Gothic, then I wrote neo-Victorian Gothic, and now I've written supernatural Gothic horror. I feel like I've investigated the sensation, um, and now I want to move on. Uh, But at the same time, I think I'm always going to be a little bit haunted by that feeling, so it will probably have some kind of Gothic behind it, I should think. I hope so. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been wonderful. Thank you. And... 
hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, I'm on a really exciting panel with some great writers on Thursday, I think. So, yeah, it's going to be good fun. Mm. Well, I'm excited and good luck. Thank you. And you can order Melmoth or indeed any of Sarah Perry's novels at booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.